Good morning, Providence. It is great to see you. Uh, great to be with you. Uh, great to see uh, old faces and new faces. Um, Wheelers, I haven't met you yet, but what a great tribute to your life and uh, 50 years. We didn't even know Jeff and Inga were that old, so. Uh, but thank you for doing that. That's, I think, I've reached this point in my life where I feel like everybody over the age of 60 ought to be 100% dedicated on mentoring people. And uh, the last lap of our life, we ought to be giving in that. So thanks for that picture for us. Uh, we are starting, uh, kids, you are dismissed if anybody's still here. Uh, they know when to go, but I'm uh, doing a three-week series here called Processing the Pandemic, and I've had, when people heard about this, I've had numbers of opinions on whether we should do this series or not, because there's a group of people that are just sick and tired of the topic, and uh, I empathize with you, but... I'm one of your pastors, and I'm going to stick your nose in it for three more weeks because I actually want to make sure that we have processed it from God's perspective. And um, I asked my own self, have I taken the time to actually process what God is doing in my life, what he did in my life for the last 15 months? And the answer is no. So I need the time, and I believe we all need it. So this is the first uh, sermon in a three-week series uh, that I'm calling Processing the Pandemic. Uh, this message is called Wrestling with God. I was originally going to uh, kind of go this route of talking about altars because we see this theme all throughout Scripture that when significant things happen, people built altars. Uh, and it was actually through that journey on altars that God actually led me to Genesis chapter 32, which we just read. And I will tell you what my ultimate dream is, is that actually on the third week of this series, you would actually have processed the pandemic, written it out on a sheet of paper, shared it with us, and then find a way to memorialize it and make it an altar in your home, uh, not just on a journal page that gets stuck onto a thing. Like this is, I think this is a once in a lifetime significant moment that it, it is incumbent upon us to actually see what God has done through us. It was the beginning of 2020 when we start, first started hearing about the virus. And honestly, when I heard that it was a serious situation, I just kind of laughed it off. Uh, that was in January. And by March, if you remember, it was March 13th when the world actually took this thing seriously. Everything shut down. We did not have church that following Sunday. Um, I was going to head on a trip to see my son, who was in Romania at the time, and that trip was canceled, and it was kind of like, you know, Europe was shut down, and it was kind of just this slow entrance into this uh, pandemic. Uh, I remember we started doing uh, sermons via video, because we couldn't even leave our houses, if you remember that. And uh, then I remember the first time our governor stood up and said we should think about wearing a mask. And I was like, no way. People are not going to wear masks. And now we've been stuck behind those things for over a year. And on April 3rd, he mandated that people had to wear masks. I remember we did a 72-hour prayer meeting. And I talked to the leadership and said, hey, we need to do this thing in April because they're going to lift this stay-at-home order and people are going to go back to life as normal at the end of April. 
just to show you what an idiot I was and how much I had no clue. And here we sit 15 months later. Uh, and so I want to like actually land this deeply uh, and actually have us really step above the clouds and look at the last 15 months at the significance of what's happened to us. It is in my lifetime of 48 years, the only time I can remember that there was a universal problem that affected the entire globe. 176 million people contracted the virus. And this invisible thing disabled the planet in less than 30 days. I can't think of another significant event except maybe 9-11 in my lifetime that had anywhere close to this impact. But even then, you know, the airplanes were shut down for three days or something like that. And we kind of moved back to life as normal. Of course, the economy was crippled and all that kind of stuff. But by and large, people weren't individually, if you didn't live in Manhattan, as affected as this affected us. It was universal. It was long-lasting. It went way longer than anybody thought it was going to take. Uh, I was reading this mental health article from this psychology magazine. talked about, we think about flourishing, and that's when I'm operating uh, at the top of my life. And then we have depression, right, where uh, life becomes uh, meaningless. But he said that the pandemic for most people was this middle stepchild called languishing. We... Uh, we're muddling through our days, looking at our life through a foggy windshield, and it, was the, it might be the dominant emotion of the pandemic. It's the void between depression and flourishing. It's defined as the absence of well-being. It dulls your motivation, disrupts your ability to focus, and triples the odds that you'll cut back on work. This is the languishing that took place in our lives. It was also devastating. Economically, it was devastating. Physically, 33% of Americans gained weight. Uh, It was emotionally devastating, spiritually devastating for people. We lost 20 million jobs. Today, one in four Americans have a hard time keeping up with their bills as a result of the pandemic. 43% of U.S. adults said it has a serious impact on their mental health. One out of five struggle with sleeping. One out of five struggle with concentrating. One out of five are fighting more with their loved ones. 17% are drinking more alcohol or taking more drugs. And more than, listen, more than one out of four parents have sought professional mental help for their children. One out of four. This is, it was devastating. Then you compound it with racial and political rebellion that took place across 2,000 cities as we all watched this video and grieved over George Floyd's death. It was like grief upon grief. And we watched our nation unravel, culminating in the January 6th takeover of the Capitol. And it was almost like we couldn't believe it. It was devastating. But you know what? You have survived. (laughs) And congratulations for surviving it. Uh, and I think you can patch stuff on the back because it was a serious threat to humanity. And to go on and say that it didn't affect you permanently, I think would actually be a misstep because the fingerprints of the pandemic, I don't think are ever going to come off of you or I. It touched us in more areas than we think. We will never, ever be the same. I started making a list of all the things in my life where it challenged my thinking. Church and state. What role does the state have in the operations of the church? 
international relations. What is our obligation to the world, and what do we really think about China? Facts and science. What do I believe about news, facts, science, and bias? Whose news is fake news? What institution can I trust? Healthcare. What is the role of government in healthcare and public safety? Government. What do I really believe about government handouts? Can you say stimulus checks? Did anybody really turn those down? Work. What does work look like? And then, how fulfilled am I really in my job? We're seeing the great exodus from jobs because people held onto their jobs during the pandemic, and now they're saying, you know, I don't even want to work here anymore. Communal responsibility. Do I have a responsibility to my community? So when I wear a mask, like, uh, I may not agree with it, but do I have a responsibility to other people? Mortality. I think we saw fear grip a population. That, that death is close to my front door. Church, what is the nature of the church? If I listen to a recorded sermon from my pastor, was that church? Finances. Are you better off or worse off than before the pandemic started? And that actually has survivor guilt attached to it and all this other stuff. Education. How do we educate people and what is the future? I mean, the higher ed value proposition, in my opinion, has taken a significant hit. Why would I pay $40,000 to be online in a class? And the first university starts coming out with low cost, man. I, mean, I think you're going to see the edifice start to collapse. Mental health. How do I handle disappointment? There were no graduations. There were no senior years, weddings, funerals, and social gatherings. One psychologist said it's, it's kind of like a protracted night because the distractions that are common in the rat race were muted for 15 months, which then resulted in a forced introspection that gave rise to anxiety because in our fast-paced world, people do not like to be alone and they don't like to be quiet. And the pandemic made us do that. Or how about our relationships? How do I get along with people on the opposite sides of this issue? By the way, if you were in any form of leadership during the pandemic, you deserve a medal. <laughs> you were leading in the workplace, leading in, your, in this congregation, leading in the world at large. This was the toughest leadership challenge that we faced. So what happened in you? And even more importantly, what happened in us? Because we are a church. And how were you changed? It's probably not as simple as saying, was it in the negative column or the positive column? Because everybody I talk to has some things in both. It is sweet and sour. So why do we do it? I was talking to someone this morning. They said, we, we should. Otherwise, we just do what we do to all of our other trauma. We just submerge it and hope that it goes away. Well, our job as pastors is to help you on your journey with Jesus to constantly be more shaped into his image. So it would be a shame for us to move on, snap back to life as normal, and not ponder these lessons. I threw this out on Facebook asking, have you processed the pandemic? And I got such a variety of responses. But my friend Miles Mendoza in education said, I was, I've been processing how so many people caught social contagions on so many issues on both sides of the aisle. I'm curious how we move from this collective trauma to a shared growth experience. I think he summed up my heart for, for us all. Can we move from collective trauma to a shared growth experience? And this is why I was led to Genesis chapter 32. I want to journey with a man who had a struggle and see how he processed it. And this is in Genesis 32, the story of Jacob. Now, if you're, if you know, if you're not familiar with the story, let me rehearse it for you. But 
these twins were born, Jacob and Esau. And in, in God's economy, usually the people that get the birthright is not the oldest child, it's usually the second. God's kingdom always flipped things upside down. And Jacob was going to be the child of the promise, even though Esau was older. And he gets to the point where his father's ready to die. And Jacob, whose name means supplanter, trickster, schemer, goes in and steals the birthright away from his brother Esau and uh, dresses up like him and gets the blessing from his father. Esau says to Jacob, I am going to kill you. And Jacob runs. And Jacob runs for 20 years outside the land. And then God starts telling him, it's time for you to go back into the land. And Jacob, we, we see how he went into Laban's territory, married wives. And, uh, but now it's time to go back to the land of promise into his father's house and enter into his inheritance. And Esau was going to come and meet him with 400 men, which is the size of a militia. So you can imagine the panic in his heart. And if you read Genesis 32, at least with a Western lens, he puts all the women and children in front and uh, stays at the back as he gets them ready to go meet this militia. And he was panicked. So, and here is a man who's manipulated and tricked and schemed his whole life. And now he's encountered a force that he thinks is too big for him. So he prays to God. By the way, the only time Jacob ever prays that we see all throughout Scripture is in this thing with Esau. You have a prayer life like that? <laughs> like when things get rough, your prayer life just goes right through the roof. It's the best you, you, a spiritual euphoria you can feel. Why? You actually feel like you need God. And he schemed and planned every step of the meeting and he goes and he gets everybody across the brook. And then he stays on the other side of the brook that evening. And that is the, one of the more strange passages of Scripture. And Nora read it, but this is where Jacob actually wrestles uh, with the angel. Go ahead and advance to the next slide if you would. It says, after he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. And when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not go unless you bless me. So I want you to get a picture of the wrestling match here. This man comes into the camp where he's sleeping. He wakes up. They engage in this wrestling match. Um, and, and it goes all night long. You know, I, we've raised four boys. Every Monday night when they were small, it used to be wrestle night. When the oldest got to 12, wrestle night went away because I couldn't handle four boys for longer than about 10 minutes when they got bigger and started beating on me, right? He wrestled with a guy. Have you wrestled anybody for over half an hour in your life? He wrestles this guy all night long, probably six to eight hours, and you can imagine the sweat and the stringy hair and the curse words and all that stuff that's pouring out of Jacob's mouth. And, I, and the reason this, this text got me is because I think we've been in a wrestling match in our lives. Some people will interpret the pandemic and they say we actually were in a wrestling match against a disease, 
They primarily look at it from that paradigm. These are the people that scream at people to wear masks and to stay socially distanced and lecture everybody on trusting science. You may know those people. You walked through those people in the pandemic, right? They thought we were fighting a disease. Others thought we were fighting the devil and that we were just a bunch of lemmings and non-thinkers, that this was a plot of the devil to take away our rights, to have government invade our liberties and shut down our churches. You know those people. We were fighting the devil. Others saw that we were actually fighting other people. This group of people already didn't like most of humanity, and now they just had an excuse to take their judginess to a whole new level because they thought we're fighting people. And actually, to tell you the truth, it's probably all somewhat true. But the, if you actually are paying attention to your own heart, our biggest wrestling match was with God. The struggle was with him. It wasn't till the wrestling match was almost over that Jacob finally realized he was not wrestling a man. He was actually not wrestling against Esau. His fight was with God. And I want, to, I want you to actually ponder what your wrestling was with God. I like how Richard Rohr in his book, Falling Upward, uh, he talked about in the first half of life that we go through, we primarily think that we're fighting the devil. I got to stop lusting Stop caring for the money and the material things of the world. I got to stop the addictions, right? I got to go to church, and I'm fighting the devil in my life. And he says, in that sense, the ego tends to win some and lose some, but we develop this kind of sense of pride. But in the second half of life, you actually realize that's not the main battle. Your battles are usually with God. And Because in your battles with God, you start realizing all the things you were trying to get in the first half of life, you're probably not going to get them. And God starts to smash the ego. And the ego hates to lose, even to God. Because all wrestling ultimately is against God. And if you have a strong belief in sovereignty of God, you had to ponder in this pandemic, God, if you're in control of all things, why are you doing this? If you're not so much in the sovereignty camp, but you're in the love camp, it'll say, God, if you really love me, why would you do this to me? Why would you not take this away? Or maybe uh, you're part of the camp that always quotes, uh, no weapon formed against me will prosper. And then your mom died. Sure looks like the weapon kind of prospered there. Or you're like, I, I'm the, I, I know the plans I have for you, crowd. Plans not of evil, but to prosper you. You're part of that crowd. You like that coffee cup verse. But you're like, I didn't prosper. We have our deepest wrestlings with God when things are not going our way. Perhaps you felt like a convicted murderer in October 2005, whose name was Pavel, in a Romanian prison. He got so mad, he actually... Uh, sued God for his troubled life. Literally took legal action against God, the resident in heaven, the lawsuit said, represented by the Orthodox Church, and God committed the following crimes, cheating, concealment, abuse against people's interests, taking bribes, and traffic of influence. He said, God claimed and received from me various goods and prayers. In other words, I gave money, and I showed up to church and prayed. And I got in exchange forgiveness and the promise that I'd be rid of problems and have a better life. But according to my lawsuit, this did not happen, and now I find myself in the devil's hands. And, and probably in the pandemic, if you were actually paying attention to your heart, you started thinking about a lawsuit against God. 
Why did you do this to me? Because we wrestle with God when we feel like we've lost control, and then we grab a hold of him and try to get him to do our will. Because don't we all have a picture of what we think God's will is for our life? Right? The graph of our life is God wants my life to get better and better and better, right? That's, that's kind of my vision of the future. And what we mean by better is more comfortable, easier, and, and it makes me happier. Jesus actually has the same line graph. He just has a different destination. He's like, conform to the image of my son. Better means you look like Jesus more than you did the day before or prior to the pandemic. That's what he wants. And by the way, he was crucified. He died, sacrificing himself for other people. And when you signed up for this Christian thing, you signed up for this life. Peter wanted a seat in the kingdom. God said, go wash feet, and you're going to be crucified upside down. Job wanted his family back. And God said, no, you need to see a bigger picture of a bigger God. Next slide, this quote uh, by David Benner, I think sums it up. Sin is unwillingness to trust that what God wants is our deepest happiness. Until I'm absolutely convinced of this, I will do whatever I can to keep my hands on the control of my life. Because I think I know better than God what I need for my fulfillment. And you know what God said? You need a pandemic. You need a full stop in your life. And the globe is going to experience it. It's going to push on everything. It's going to make you angry, frustrated. You are going to wrestle, and you're not going to win. And then, what did the, what did, what did the, what did the angel do? He touched Jacob's hip. Just touched it. And what happened? It popped out of socket. Okay? If you've seen the, the, you know, the skeletons, right? And you see the, the hip kind of cavity. And then your leg pops up with a ball and socket connected by tendons and muscles and sinews. And the angel of God touched that spot and the bone pops out. And the tendons rip and the muscles tear. What does that feel like? <laughs> you aren't thinking about anything else. Like you are screaming. And this is the moment Jacob realized this is not a man. This is God. No man can go and touch my hip and see that happen. Can I say this? I think if you're actually paying attention to your heart, there has to be a time in the pandemic where God touched you. Because he wants transformation in your life. And you are not going to win. You are not going to win. God will touch the place where your lifelong identity is affected. God has a way of taking our lifelong problems that we've struggled with and touchy, touches you and he makes you face them. Jacob was a wrestler from birth. He was so stubborn and self-willed that he could be maimed by God and still hang on in the ring with God. God will let you win the wrestling match if you're too stubborn to see that he's wanting you just to surrender. 
He'll eventually walk away from the fight and let you do what you want to do, but you're not ultimately going to win. He will let you exhaust yourself in the effort. And what he really wants you to do is release and to let go. This past month was my 25th anniversary as a pastor. And in my own life and in my congregational life, I've seen people wrestle with God to get their way whether it was a spouse, a career, money, their idea of the perfect life, and they, 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 they wrestled and wrestled and wrestled, and finally they saw a shortcut, and they went and took it. And they experienced the fruit of their own ways, and I've done it myself. And when God touches you, it feels like a punishment. It feels like he's hurting you. It feels like he's actually limiting your life plans. And what do you say when he touches you? You're like, owie! Please stop. He wounds you in the perfect place. Why? To take away your self-reliant power. Hosea actually talks about this passage. And when Hosea talks about it, Hosea says that at that moment, Jacob wept. Leading through his own power was over. And Jacob would not walk with a limp the rest of his life. I am a challenger personality, according to the Enneagram, if you're part of that cult. Uh, the pandemic is the worst for an eight. Because we, we want to do stuff. We want to take hills. We want to charge. We want to move. And man, it, is like, it was like running through quicksand. And it was like God going, no matter what you try, Jason, it is not going to go anywhere. I'm like, I don't like to hear that. I don't like to hear that. I wrestled with releasing and surrendering. And in the exhaustion, God started speaking to me about my life to shake me up. And I didn't, I didn't want it. You know, to, to some degree, the idea of providence happened 15 years ago in 2006. The first time the idea came to my mind and God started developing a magnet in my heart. And after 15 years, like the last two or three years, it's like I've actually loved this little bit of heaven on earth called Providence Bible Church and Cross Purpose. I've loved it. I'm actually getting paid a livable wage. I'm with friends that I've been with, sometimes some of them for over a decade. And, I, and you know, of course, we've got problems and you know, all that kind of stuff. But by and large, I've been part of church my whole life. Like, this is really good space. And it is comfortable. And God's like, hey, the last time that happened to you, I had to jack things up. I'm like, oh, God, please don't. I don't want to plant another church. <laughs> please, Jesus, don't. You know. And I think God clearly showed me some things where he gave us some space in the nonprofit and said, you've been doing the same thing for four years. It's time to take this tool and help other people, help other churches. But you know, when you scale, like, uh, it feels like a startup around here again. The level of stress, anxiety, rededication, re-upping. You know, Juan and I have had long conversations about this. Uh, it, and it's almost like feeling like God's saying, you need to go into this space. And you know what? We could have just put this thing in cruise control, people to pat us on the back saying, good, good people doing good things. 
I wrestled with it. Finally, I had to come to the point where I was like, are you going to go or not? In the church, several of our elders are reaching retirement age. But, you know, we've done life together for a while. But life doesn't stay the same. And it was like, you saw this in the, in the plan came out in December, like to really invest in another generation of leaders uh, for the church. And there's a big part of me that actually went to the mat with God on this. Because I don't like change. I don't like the stress of not knowing the future. I don't like the anxiety. I, I love comfort land. You know, I, 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 I'm too, I, I can get exhausted thinking about how I live my life in my 30s. And I don't want to do that again. Where did God touch you? What was he trying to do in you? Even more importantly, how did he touch us? What was he trying to do in us? We, we cannot have walked through the, one of the most significant experiences of our life without collectively saying, what did God do? What did Jacob say at the end of the passage? The man said, let me go for it's daybreak. And Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Jacob knew enough to know that he had connived and schemed his whole life. He had crafted his own plans and his own career and his own life and his own uh, wealth. But he did it. He got the blessing, but it was all through his manipulation. And here he has God uh, in his grasp. And he says, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. What is he saying? I want the blessing coming from you. I'm done being the manipulator, the schemer. Jacob already had the birthright. He already had schemed to win that, but he knew he was at odds with God. And this time he wanted God's blessing. And Jacob had this hunger for God. And he didn't have to deceive to get it. He just had to say, by your grace, would you give it to me? So it would be terrible for us to rush on without reflection. What did you wrestle with God during the pandemic on, and what is the blessing? Did you ever eat a half-cooked pizza? It's gross. The dough is gooey. Did you ever eat a half-cooked piece of chicken? You get sick. If we race on because we're so glad we don't have to wear masks anymore when we get back to work and we have a half-cooked trial, like... We, we have not done the baking that God wants us to do in our life. You say, well, I don't, I get scared when I think about this space. I, I'm not going to give you any comfort in that. Because when Jesus came to this earth, Jesus is the one who said, uh, I, first of all, I'm not going to seek equality. I'm going to make myself a servant. I'm going to be made in fashion as a man. Instead of scheming and grabbing Esau's heel and scheming for the birthright in his hands, he, he put nothing. And he died with nails going through them. And he says, I'm inviting you into this life to become more like me. When C.S. Lewis um, wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, we did the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. He, in that story, Eustace uh, becomes a bad little boy and he turns into this dragon. But as he comes back to Aslan, 
uh, he, he wants to be back to be a boy again, and he tries to peel the scales off of his skin, and he can't quite do it. And the lion, Aslan, walks up to him and says, you're going to have to let me do it. Eustace says, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear of Aslan he made was so deep, I thought it went right into my heart, and it began pulling the skin off, and it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off, and there it was laying on the grass, and I was smooth and soft as a peeled stick, and smaller than I had ever been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And I saw why. I turned into a boy again. Through life, the scales of the world and its value just seemed to attached to us. And the beauty of a pandemic is we get a chance to wrestle with God. And if we just surrender and say, God, just rip that stuff off. I want to be a boy again. I want to be like you again. Will you help me do that? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the global pandemic of COVID-19. Thank you that you sacrificed the physical in our world, to put the brakes in our lives to see spiritual growth happen. Lord, as we ponder it here these next three weeks, show us your glory. Let us become the little boy again. Strip off the stuff that's keeping us from looking like you. And we trust in your grace to do it. We ask this in your name. Amen.